RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. It's time for our Friday morning political panel. This is what we look forward to at the end of the week here at RCR. And this morning, I want to welcome our panellists, Pem Bird. Kia ora, Pem. Thanks for coming on. Kia ora. Uh, it's a pleasure to, um, to join you guys. Paul, everyone. Marie. Marie Buskey. Thank you, Good Marie. Good morning. Good morning. And Marty Gibson. Hi, Marty. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. Just to remind everybody, Pem Bird is a New Zealand educator and Māori community leader. And I'm reading from the wiki page here, Pem, so I hope it's accurate. <laughs> you know how it can be. <laughs> uh, t- 2010 to 2013 president of the Māori Party. And uh, we chatted on um, this program all oh, months ago, Pem. That was a great chat, by the way. And I believe you've just had a medical. How are you shaping up? Yes, um, I'm, I'm, despite my broken heart, I'm in good nick. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I think Wait, um, just a little bit heavier than I would like would have liked, but I'm good. I'm really oh, you good. can handle a little bit of that. At, at <laughs> um, yeah, you you mentioned it's very sad that uh, your wife passed away. So that's the broken heart kind of you're referring to. So <laughs> I hope you you're getting on okay. Anyway, thanks for coming on the program this morning. Let's get straight into it. What do you make, Pem, of the negotiations to form a government? A lot of reporting on it now, and uh, it, it's kind of some of the reporting seems to be a bit childish, but okay, they're covering it. Uh, with your experience uh, going back uh, over the years, uh, what do you make of all that, what you're seeing at the moment? So we've had uh, the, the, the uh, Mr. Luxon talking about uh, wanting a good, stable government. And he's got uh, David Seymour, he's got Winston Peters. And uh, it'll take a wee bit of time. They'll all have their must-get-across-the-lines David wants to have a referendum, for example, on the Treaty of Waitangi. I think that's his. Is that a good idea? I think uh, he needs to be clear about is it the Treaty or the Treaty, two different things. Yeah. Mm. You, need to, it- you need to be able to differentiate. They're not the same. Yeah. One's not a direct translation of the other. Hence the confusion. <laughs> Well, the confusion, you see, is, I mean, it manifests itself in the Māori Health Authority. Is that working all right? Is it well-resourced? I've been having a talk around, a word around the place. We, we should be more concerned about the World Health Organization. Yeah. Never mind the Māori Health one. Yeah, well, our mm. audience would be with you on that. Um, what do you think about Winston's role in in what's going on? Winston, you see, the best thing is to have a face-to-face. Kanuikita Kanuikita is in Tao Māori, and you can look at one another in the eye and you can have a discussion. You might have some hard points, really sticky points, whether you can come to consensus on those. Winston was backed by the freedom movement. In the freedom movement, we've got to look at the human rights and say, what condition are our basic human rights in? Mm. But what are they looking like in today's world? Yeah. So that, that, that's got to be something he's got to, to me to think about. But it'll take a bit of time. But hopefully, um, once they have their face-to-face in Wellington, uh, they'll get on with it. If you were Winston, um, and because you mentioned that, that the sort of like the weight of that freedom movement, if you want to call it that, is on him. There's no question about that. And that movement 
is very well informed. Sometimes they run around like chickens with their heads cut <laughs> off, but they're, they're well informed. They know what they want. They realize what we've been through. They don't want to go there again. They have a sense of patriotism about their country, and they feel that that has been yeah, absolutely. turned upside down. And that's that's a hill to die on, isn't it? Um, Winston, particularly him in this, really needs to go as hard out, even if it's tough, awkward, and almost brings it down on behalf of of us, doesn't he? Yes, he must be. Um, he must take it up. He's got. To, he's got to take it up like a good prop forward. Mm. <laughs> take it up. No, no, be relentless. Yeah. Because the weight of the nation is on his shoulders. Yeah. Hey, uh, Pim, uh, do you reckon that the presence of him and the presence of Shane Jones as well is uh, maybe a good um, a good point for more constructive discussions, you know, between Māori and Pākehā? Do you think it, it might well, be good for that as well? That's something that Cam uh, says often when he's on the – Program that um, it, it's it's a good thing for uh, for Luxon to farm out to those guys because uh, they might be better at that than uh, than him. Certainly more aware of the issues within Te Ao Māori. Well, coming from the north too, mm. which we we had the poorest whanau from, poorer poorer than we in Murupara apparently. <laughs> And they should be well informed by their 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 constituents, and and it's really putting the thing on what 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 is it, what is the top priority that that people want? Mm. Is it freedom? Freedom of choice, freedom of expression, or is it something else? But he's carrying all of that. And there, there, are, there are so many, many, and they shouldn't weigh him down. It should enlighten him. It should give him, it should give him, a, you know, kaha, Winston. Yeah. Looking up, that guy's, he must be almost 80. Yeah, 78. And he's been around such a long time. He's accumulated a hell of a lot of experience. He must know every trick in the book, political trick. He's so that, I'm, I'm wishing him well. I'm hoping he does the business. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Shane is too. I've known Shane for for long, for a very long time. And when they they put together the first Kudakopapa Māori in, in Newtown, okay, Wellington. Yeah. And I went to the opening. I was working for the Ministry of Education at the time, and he was about a third of the size he is now. <laughs> but he's always had the intellect. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's sort of everything. I mean, there's Winston, you you mentioned his experience, but also Shane, and also in business and, you know, higher education as well as politics. They're kind of cut out for this, aren't they, in a way? Well, he's Harvard boy, Harvard graduate, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, Shane. So he's got the business brain. He's uh, got the intellect and um, a good team there. It's what they do with the with the with the other how they get what they want across the line with the other the other with Act and um, Mister Luxon. He'd be playing with them a bit though, wouldn't he? Because he's such a such a mismatch in experience there. I mean, of course he is. 
<laughs> Mr. Luxon wants he's, he wants to go after the gangs. Yeah, yeah. well, remove the tattoos from their face. Now that's a populist move. We get a lot of votes on that one. Because you're oh. a motopata, Pim, and you know there has been certainly, I mean, to a lesser extent in motopata, but certainly through that other central part of the Bay of Plenty, there has been inf- um, negative influence with the gangs, but. I mean, Marty and I have talked about this before. I mean, we when they put out what was it, a seven-point plan of the things they wanted to do to crack down on gangs, uh, we pretty much disagreed with all of them because, I mean, it's so superficial. I mean, it goes more than just skin deep of a tattoo or a patch on your back. I mean, it's vastly more systemic. I mean, what do you see there in your communities? Well, for me, I'm Tangata Whenua in Mairohe. I meet with the gang members. I don't fear them. And I've had them from the big chief in the Waikato, hosted him, and my, my in my kura uh, hall, go through the proper protocol of karakia, showing respect, and and you get respect back. And we we managed to work out what you call a tataupounamu, a permanent peace here in Murupara. So you know, and and then. I've got one who was uh, an enemy of mine because I banned patches from being worn on our marae and put a rahi on it. Don't care who you are, you're not welcome here. And uh, from that, we, he's now on my board of trustees because <laughs> I've worked with them. I talk to them. I don't push them away. Why would I want to do that? And I've worked at a national level with all the gangs, uh, Black Power and the, the Mongol mob and formed a pretty strong bond relationship that endures to this day. Pierre, what do you make of Willie Jackson's comments that there'd be trouble if there was that, we're getting back to, you know, circling back, as they say, to when we started talking, um, David Seymour's talk of a referendum on the treaty or Tetiriti, as you say, two sort of separate things in a way. But uh, Willie Jackson's saying there, you know, there could be war, I think he said. And now I'm, I know he's sort of kind of talking it up a bit. But someone actually saying that is kind of not helpful. Yeah, not helpful, <laughs> right? I think I think can see from he's, he's, that's his, his, his party's position, and um, whether he has a referendum or not, if that's if that's what he does, he does. But the the the, the treaty manifests itself in so many different areas of, of life now. I just mentioned the the. The health, the whole one. I've talked to, I've talked to, and I know the young, the chairman, Tipa Mahuta, is Nanai Mahuta's sister, well educated. We got, we got to do is, is, is look at the external enemies who are going to encroach on our sovereignty. That's the big one, right? That's that's the big one. That's right. Let's 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 not let's let's patch our differences up. Willie, come on. Wake up to what's happening in the world externally. Yeah, but no one is. Everyone's asleep at the wheel, we've found at the moment. <laughs> there, there's no information out there in the mainstream media where most people get their information. There's not one dot of mention of any of that at all. And if there is any, it's um, it's sort of twisted around, you know, conspiracy theorists, tinfoil hat uh Yes, you know, anti-vaxxer, all those bloody things. You know, yeah, I'm all of that. Mm. Yeah. Well, you're also an educationalist, Pim, and and 
I mean, so many of these problems that we argue about, and frust- it frustrates me to see them blamed on racism, stem from a failing education system, don't they? And I mean, oh, look, we just got to get on with it. See, I've been around in the education world fifty-three years, and whether I've met, whether I've met a racist or not, I just get on with it. I know what I'm after, and more than often than not, I got what I'm after. Up against the bureaucracy, see the first immersion Maori school in 1986 in Huntley. Up against the bureaucracy, mm. we got across the line. So then, some of the positives that could actually get things across the line could be potentially a reinstatement of charter schools because Maori did really well under charter schools. Now I went, I presented with Sir Toby Curtis to the select committee. And we were 100%. This was, a, this was an act innovation. Uh, Catherine, uh, Catherine Isaac? Yeah, her. She was president, I think. David Seymour. And we, we supported it 100%. Mm-hmm. And um, we could see the bulk funding, the flexibility in staffing, you know, the more autonomy. But what got me was the there was the accountability in it. Yeah, the huge accountability. I went up north and to suss one out up north, and I sat with the board there, and I could see it was a scam, and I reported it, and I said to the minister at the time, um, "Hekia, shut it down, shut it down." She did. But that the idea that the, the Kurahodua, they call them, charter school, same thing. But I was totally pro. Uh, to, to the extent that I invited David Seymour to my um, kura, welcomed him there, and I asked him the question, I'm already an established kura tribal school. Is it Can a tribal school convert or be a charter school of Kurahodua as well? He said, I'll check that out. How did you get on with him, Pim? Like, how did you well, find him as a person? Very good. Mm. See, the thing is, if you've got a professional relationship, it's mutually respectful. You can argue anything, debate anything. But you know, when you come to Akuda, you get you get poor fitty, you get you know, you get treated like with respect, honourably, and then you 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 have a talk, have a cup of tea. <laughs> mm. I, you know, I was really um, disappointed. I think the unions got stuck into it with the Chris Hipkins. Yeah, it was shut down on day one, wasn't it? Mm. Day one of of, uh, of that first Labour government. Yeah, it was. So, but education is an interesting field. What is uh, the Te Pāti Māori looking at within, within terms of education? Have you still got any contacts with the the party there, Pim? Yes, I do. I couldn't um, travel to Rawiri Lossi's mum. I couldn't travel to her tangi. There were floods all over the place. So I sent my condolences and put a koha through. Um, um Rawiri, I got him. I, he the first time he um, made a move into politics, I hosted him here and took him through this the most remote area, one of the most remote areas in this country. Said every voice want they want to see you. 
where you go, do your thing, man. So he got in, um, there's a recount, Tamati Coffee was the MP, but he, he made it. Now he's, they've got six in, um, but unless you're in the government, you're not going to get anywhere. But surely, if they, because this is one of the things, they may be sitting on the cross benches, but with things like education and the importance of charter schools, wouldn't it just be so refreshing that they say, hey, look, um, if this is something that gets across the line, we have experience and this is good for our people. Let's, as you say, let's get together, sit down, have a quarter to work it all out. You know, you don't, just because you're not necessarily in the government, it doesn't mean you can, can't work collectively. For me, the two areas that are the key is education and health. Mm-hmm. Education is on top of TV. I'm pleased we just did our own thing at the Kura. We do our own thing. So you mentioned health. Health is a disaster. Yes. Like for everyone, it's a disaster. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How many what? people were mandated out? Thousands. How many More were exempted? 11,005. Uh, but and everyone's getting sicker. The ambulances are crazy. People are being left in corridors. No one knows why. It's a complete mess. Yes. So ground up. Something from the ground up needs to happen there, surely, in health for everyone. Yeah, you're right, ground up. And and, and administrators, politicians, my goodness me. What about Māori's seats? Because another thing that's come out of this election is that uh, Māori in – pure representation, proportion of representation is over, you know, the uh, slice of the population. So that that kind of goal has been met. Um, I know it's controversial, and that was part of what I guess Willie was alluding to as well. Is it time for those Māori seats with MMP, with the representation level that's been achieved now, to just disappear and sail off on to, into the sunset now? Yeah, with the seven seats um, from four to seven, MMP, I think um, Māori themselves would need to look at that and put the question, Are we? is our voice being heard the way it ought to be? Where are we, where, where are we, our voice, where are we when they create legislation? The core business of Parliament is put law through, you know? What was rushed through under the last government, Public Health Act? You know, what needs to be repealed? We need to have a put that under the microscope and check it out. Well, it, it, the other thing that is interesting to me is it's it's not just uh, the voice of Māori, it's the voices, because there is has been that assumption that there is just one voice and just one... Yeah, uh, that's right, you're right. Uh, and, and I see, uh, you know, often, often that's been emphasised. I, I know... Um, uh, one of the new Māori MPs said that, you know, the, the Kura generation are all thinking the same. And I thought, well, I don't know if that's something to be proud of. You know, you you want diversity of, of thought and opinion. And it's interesting. See, I, I spoke to a couple um, of young Māori who I was talking to in regards to doing an interview. And, you know, they're feeling actually quite left out, especially around core issues, not around culture so much, but around uh, a lot of the ideological things in terms of uh, gender and all the things that they feel that Māoridom has been wrapped up into. 
and 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 she said it's like this has nothing to do with who we are. You know, we're about family and and Fano and Hapu and 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 yet they've been sort of pushed over into this import that's come from North America. And it's Marxism. Said, it's, it's the colonization that dare not speak its name. Yeah, yeah, and it was interesting. They're both univers- in university, and they felt that they were uh, they were struggling. They were feeling excluded. So I'm hoping to get them back to have a little bit of a chat about that uh, later on. But it was it was it was something I was completely unaware of that was going on. Yeah, because yeah. as you said, there is they betray everything as a single voice. And when you, when you meet Maori, you come back from Australia, especially that they've got often quite a different perspective, and and it could be that the ones who uh, go to Australia or maybe the ones who feel maybe they don't want to fit into a, a mould with a single voice. I had a chat with Hone Harawera uh, once and, and I said, why do you think so many uh, so many um, Māori head off to Australia? And he said, oh, you know, it's because of all the racism here. I said, mate, you've been to Australia. You know they're heaps more racist than we are. And I said to him, do you think maybe – they're getting away from people like you who tell them that they can only be failures and that they're, you know, compromised by a racist system so they can never get ahead and they want something a bit more aspirational? Yeah, I guess there, there are, there's that group who feel that. I mean, in education, I own a whole state called it unconscious bias. You know, it's as natural as breathing. <laughs> mm. And I guess it is. I guess there is. To, to be but, fair you know, to him, Honey did say, "Ho oh, ho, yeah, I guess it could be." You know, he, you know, he, he didn't get <laughs> didn't get peeved about it or anything. Couple of um, interesting stories in the last few days. I guess it shows us, um, uh, you know, what's happening ahead of this new government. And I'll just uh, mention a few of them. Ministry leaks staff backlash after Tereo Mali scrubbed from official use ahead of new government. Stats NZ is talking about laying people off and people are saying it's uh, getting ahead of the new government. Um, I know from people I know in MB that there could be quite a reduction in staff there, again, ahead of the new government. We know David Seymour wants to sort of take a blowtorch or a chainsaw or whatever to um, yeah. uh, staff numbers in the public service that, that have ballooned out. We heard yesterday, uh, sorry, on Wednesday, um, from uh, lawyer Tudor Clee, who was telling us about the incredible behaviour, dysfunctionality of the people involved in the COVID response, who are still on $200,000, $300,000 jobs. They haven't gone anywhere. So it looks like all we heard about uh, too much fat in the system, um, drones doing nothing, getting paid a lot, kind of all true, right? <laughs> well, could we say, or it looks like it is? Well, I thought one of the best points Luxon made through the campaign, and they should have really leaned into this a lot more, was the spend, government spending's gone up 80%. Do any of you feel that your service levels have gone up 80%? Most people felt they'd gone backwards. So, you know. You give a bunch of Marxist student politicians a credit card. It's it's no it's no surprise when they go a bit wild with it and max it out. Yeah, but I guess if you do big layoffs, there's no um, slack in the economy to pick them up. I mean, what are they good for? With respect, I'll do plenty of slack. 
Well, they just, well, they might have to actually get their hands dirty and do a little bit of hard mahi. I mean, there is life beyond work for, with a laptop. So I think some of them might have to pivot a little bit into some of those other roles that we're currently relying on immigration <laughs> to fill. Yeah, and then they'll turn it into a play or something. It'll be great. Do you know how many there are? I know Imbi's looking at about happened? a 15% um, slash, so that I don't know what that is in raw numbers, but I know that they ballooned massively. 50% of all journalists that disappeared in six years with the shrinking down of a lot of media all went to the public service, so it'll be interesting to see how many of those get laid off. Well, there aren't jobs to accommodate oh. them in any other sector. They're gone. So sitting sitting around all day looking at spreadsheets... It's not really a job, is it? <laughs> Does that actually qualify as a so, job? So he looks on, he's, he's got this one right, is he? Speaking of the, the slasher to the public service. Marty, that was your point? Yeah, yeah, he he needs to because it's, it's driving us broken. If you look at it, as we were talking about, what some of those people are getting paid, and then you think, well, what would you have to do in the pub and the private sector to get that sort of money? Um, there's there's a big imbalance. Yeah, you'd be lucky to get it. But a lot of it too goes back to outcomes. It's like what you were saying just before, yeah. Pim, with one of those um, schools and you went up to have a look at the charter schools. I mean, it comes back to having outcomes and measurable outcomes. Well, right. There's been lots of focus on spending and not a lot of focus on outcomes. I think we need to get back to outcome have it being outcome focused and they've talked about that in the health service. Dr Shane Retty has talked about that extensively um, and whether or not they're able to achieve that in the short term, I don't think they will. I think the culture in the health service is irreparably broken and COVID, I mean, it was already under strain prior to the pandemic and the pandemic has really taken that beyond breaking point. You've got people who have been shunned out of the system. They are not being welcomed back into the system at all. For those who have gone back and not many have, they are struggling to assimilate that because they are oh, look. they are not made to feel welcome. It's rotten to the core. Mm. It really is. I've been giving a letter. Somebody showed me here in my Murupa. Somebody somebody left the hospital there in Rotorua. And uh, should I get ill, I'm not. They're not going to admit admit me to uh, Rotorua Hospital. So where would they send you, Waikato? Well, I'm just not going to get sick. <laughs> <laughs> That's the spirit. <laughs> I, I tell you what, when I when I had an accident and fractured five ribs, I ended up in Fakatani Hospital. Amazing place. I've heard good. You actually got Fakatani. some. You actually got some Kiwi nurses. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because I know a more part of stuff from this country in there. Because in Murupara, I mean, have they managed to get secure some doctors there? I know uh, Conlon was having to bring them in from down south. I mean, pr- private medical practice is so much more efficient. If you talk to someone who works in A&E, they'll say, oh, we, we offer a free service. It's not free. It costs about $200 a patient as opposed to maybe 50 f- once you factor in the, any subsidy in, in private practice. And, you know, I've spoken to a... A doctor who had to take her landlady into A and E, uh, and she was just flabbergasted. She said she sat there for something like three hours, and the number of patients they were seeing was just tiny. She said, "I, I felt like uh, 
grabbing a name badge and a stethoscope and just going around saying, right, that kid's got glue ear, they need some flo- flu clocks, get them in. They're having kids waiting for five, six, seven, eight hours, and they could have been seen in 10 minutes. Um, and there's that self-righteousness yeah. of the public service that says it's a free service. But our chickens are coming home to roost now, and, and the, the crushing weight of paying that back, the $100 billion of debt the last government's racked up, um, and it, it amazed me how uncritically the um, media just listened to them patting themselves on the back about what they'd done. And it's like, well, if you gave me $100 billion, I could do all sorts of things. You'd probably solve everything. Um, Pretty much. One of the things that came out of our legal hub with, again, Tudor Clee, talking about the health system and its credibility and our faith in it, turned out that decisions – on MIQ placements for pregnant New Zealand women were being made by a Zomba coach, a Zumba coach. What? Yeah, go back and listen. Yeah, I've downloaded it for my road trip, actually. Um, I'll tell you what, it'll blow your mind. (laughs) I interviewed a lady who got very badly vaccine injured by a hairdresser who jabbed her. Clown world. Clown world. And um, she, she said she started feeling sick and she said, oh, maybe go to the toilet. She went to the toilet and fainted, collapsed. Um, so, yeah, there's a fair bit of – I don't know if you can rebuild the trust. You, you, if you're a pregnant woman, you could have got a space in MIQ if you chose to have a caesarean because that was a scheduled medical event. Oh, great. So this is what we're the, dealing with. This is what, the, the, there was an article a few weeks ago, which we didn't get to in Media Matters, but I had actually pulled it out, so you may have seen it too, Marty. And it was around uh, a crisis in the midwifery service. Now, midwifery services were interesting. Of A lot of the services within the health industry, they were the ones that, one that suffered most from uh, mandating because these, these midwives were very aware of what was going on because they were at the absolute coalface of some of the harms. So they were seeing the harms firsthand and they were seeing the lies firsthand. And a lot of them were just like, we, they put their hands up and said, no, we can't do this. And they did not want to be placed in a position where they were forced to actually uh, administer medical but that went against their own oath. So so many of them left. Now they're trying to train midwives and get midwives through the system, but there are so few now in the system, they can't pull midwives back, uh, that they're unable to um, get these midwives' trainings completed because they're not getting enough practic- practicum hours on the wards to complete their training. And they're timing out in that period in order to do so. So, and it's not, and I understand there are um, other associated medical um, specialties having the same sort of issues. And it's like, gosh, how do you fix this? And immigration, I think, is what they believe is their solution. And it, that worries me because I don't. I think that's only very much a Band-Aid, a, a Band-Aid fix. It really no, is not the right fix. We need to grow our own. Homegrown is what it is, you know. That, that 28% drop in, in live births. You know, I, I, I heard about midwives who had whole open months where they'd normally be crammed full of appointments scheduled, you know, when, when their ladies were expecting. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the issues that they're getting, they're getting more and more issues earlier. They're getting earlier deliveries. They're getting lower birth rate, uh, birth weights. They're having uh, more difficult labours that are having more interventions. It's, uh, yeah. you know, but no one sees anything. 
And I'm and I've been to more Tangihanga. Mm. Mm. I went to one yesterday. As long as it's not know. yours, Pim, we're good. Uh, are you noticing an uptick, Pim? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, definitely. Right. Are the lights coming on for people? Do you find? Because no. I've been shocked sometimes just how how uh, willfully blind some people are. Whether it's well, it's you, yeah. That's that's a good way of saying it. Willfully blind, and people just are, are not waking up. Mm. Can't see it or refuse to see it. But. Yeah, I've, um, I've, I've likened yeah. us complaining to, to being like the alarm going off when you keep hitting snooze. It's kind of annoying. <laughs> okay, so we, uh, is there anything else that we need to get on to um, aftermath of the election? Well, another story that's come to light is uh, the IPCA investigation into police handling at uh, the Wellington protest. Turned out what It turns out that one police officer was particularly rough. We've seen the footage of the naked woman being pulled out of the um, the crowd, if you if you will, by the hair, and then knelt on another teenage um, young chap was had his uh, uh, skull knelt on, and people are saying um, that that could have resulted in him dying. And it's turned out that uh, the identity of the police officer that was being protected has come to light, and there's now legal action against that officer. And I think now also the uh, commissioner of police. Um, we know that the police. Um, pledge their, I guess, full allegiance to the crown and not the people. Is it time to ditch this current system and go to a republic? Um, I know this is a big picture thing, but I mean, it sort of raises these issues where police and military are actually here for the people and not the crown. Mm. Anyone got any thoughts on that? It's a big one to unpack. I just want to dub that on you. My thought is that as a nation, we need to do some shadow work. And and the police obeying those orders, behaving in that way towards their fellow citizens, uh, and and all sorts of other things. You know, people uh, reporting their neighbours for for visit. You know, ha- having their children visit them if they are elderly. All that sort of thing reveals this dark shadow that we'd been able to ignore prior to that. But we can't rely on law enforcement to be backing us the citizen, because they're not signed up to that fundamentally. I actually think a lot of it comes down to leadership. And we've seen poor leadership, exceptionally poor leadership, not only over the last 60 years, but also within within police. I mean, again, how many, I mean, we probably, all of us here will know really good, solid senior officers who just put their hands up and, and how many perfed out? A lot. You know, they just you said, know, you know what? Yeah. You know, we've had enough. I know a lot went across to fisheries, pretty much every fisheries officer, particularly around, I'm on the East Coast, Pim, particularly around here, a lot of them are, um, are ex-cops. I'm inclined to agree with you, you know, that um, occupation, or they called it a protest, and, uh, under Mr. Costa. Yeah, Andrew Costa. I think um, that's, a bit of, that's a betrayal. I've been with the police for a while, a number of things, the Tuhoi apology. And Mr. Bush, Mike Bush, his first appearance there, how it brought snuck off somewhere. The police commissioner at the time, Dunamoy, probably got a promotion somewhere else, approved by Helen Clark. 
And Mike Bush made a good fist of the time he was there. His first public appearance uh, to front it, to front the apology. You know, the two hoy raids. Yep. yep. So he fronted it. And he had to put up with a whole lot of uh, real um, tough, tough talk, hard talk, out on the Marae. He just listened with translators there, and he, he he took it. And then went in, and the apology was signed up to in the in the farikai, the eating place. So he went through that process, and I thought there was a good start to his career at that time, in that context. Um, this one, this peaceful protest occupation. Because I went down there for three days, I thought I'd go and I'd go and speak out too. And then when I saw what happened, I became good friends with the freedom and outdoors movement. Sue Sue Gray and her husband Alan. Alan yep. Yeah, he was he was deliberately deliberately set upon, and had his. His hip broken, smashed. Yeah. yeah, you know he was targeted, and that that that. And the other thing I won't forget about that is the leaders of the of the different parties, political parties, signed the pact that they would not come out to meet the people, and that included Rawiri Waititi. Yeah. So, you know, is protest a part of a democracy or not? Peaceful so how protest. did you feel about that, Pim? You know, I mean, you've got you've got some, you know, history with Rawari. I mean, were you, I mean, were you disappointed that even yes. he? Yes, very disappointed. And uh, you know, when we went on, we were welcomed officially by the local Tangata Whenua. Uh, in the proper manner, Ngāti Ira and Ngāti Rangi. And I, I thought, oh, this is fantastic. This is the way to do it. Met a whole lot of good people, fabulous people. They had a, they had an area for the, for the, for the, for the Komatua. They had people on duty uh, at the gates making sure everybody was safe, safe entry, and all sorts of things. A lot of good food. The uh, Everything was set up magnificently. I remember speaking and the policeman behind me, and I, th I, I thanked them for keeping us safe, <laughs> doing their job, turned and spoke to them, not knowing a few days later. I think it was 33 days. That whole thing. A friend of mine was camped down there for the entire day, three days, 33 days. A couple of my friends from Murupara. Oh, it inspired a whole lot of people. Convoys. You know, let's have, make, have our voices heard. Well, that's why we had the election result that we had, isn't it, from that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's always 33. I love the number 33. Numerology. I don't know what it is. Um, so, Cost, as part of the <laughs> new government, 
Costa's got to go, right? He's got to go. What's he done? Well, well he was he was the police commissioner, wasn't he? He, he he's oversaw. Done oh and yeah, what's he done? Yeah, is, yeah. These guys who profess Christians do anything but. That's a good point. He comes from out of King's College, apparently. And you just have to look at, you know, you speak to the likes of the Indian communities and the, uh, you know, with the ram raids and they'll be saying probably exactly the same thing. What has he done? What has he done for us? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Something else that uh, is kicking around too, you might have a view on, looks like there'll be a mini budget right after this government is formed and there's only ever a mini budget out of the normal budget process if there's a problem, right? So obviously there's a yes. problem. <laughs> so do you think we're in for some... I think we'll see, They've I got think to draw we'll... a line, don't they? And they, they've got to say, well, this is how much crap we're in because, I mean, it'll be interesting to to see what sort of time Labor wait until they're cracking into national football performance. So they've, they've really got to uh, draw a pretty good line about the state of the country when they got it. Uh, again, you imagine if they had an extra, well, $100 billion, as I said, to play with that, that hadn't been just blown. You, you could do all sorts of things. But, uh, you know, Shane was saying, well, this is a different uh, coalition arrangement because there's no money. Yeah. Roberts, Robertson was actually gloating about it and saying all these people promising things, but there's no money as if it wasn't his fault. <laughs> And they spent, let's, I mean, let's not forget, let's not forget that what was the mantra that we heard for the full first three years of this Labour government? Well, we're having to undo nine years of mismanagement of the national government. And we haven't had time, you know, Jacinda, how many times did Jacinda Ardern say, well, I've only had this job for six weeks or nine weeks before the election. It's like you were on the crossbenches for nine years, darling. What were you doing that in time? And fully briefed by the WEF training school. Yeah, so you know yes. it, they were they're very good at those excuses. So I think that it'll be they'll come thick and fast once this new mini budget comes out. They'll have every excuse in the book for why it's why it is. Yeah. And it won't be their fault. And it's the, the next they sort of shifted gear into, well, it was co- we had COVID to deal with. As I've said before, COVID's like a possum crossing the road and the COVID response is driving off the road uh, and yeah. uh, off a cliff and into a river. Yeah. You should give out millions, give out millions to get the vaccine done. Every Runong in this country got millions, became yeah. vaccine centres. The thing is our doctor... He said, um, "Well, we, it's the um, it's a no-brainer. It's going to hit us, but we have got early treatment. Early treatment protocols. We've got people on, sorry, Bernard, ivermectin, and all sorts of stuff. Ooh, <laughs> gonna have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> and when we withstood that, and he was not allowed to administer any any assistant medical." Because he was stood down, we, we had a rally of support for Bernard here. We wanted to save our doctor, so his wife, she had so much to do, and she did her thing with his prescription. And only we're talking about several thousand ecofenua, 
that we're going from Kaingaroa, which is about 100 kilometers, poorer communities here, they treated. And only five went into the general ward, none went into ICU. Mm. There you go, for his, with his meds, with his combination. Think and vitamin I'm, C, vitamin D, ivermectin. Oh, the few other things weren't there. I've I've heard stories about about Ministry of Health staff coming and and uplifting ivermectin from pharmacies. What to for themselves or to just so they won't wouldn't be available to get it out of circulation. So would that be so, the Zumba coach again? Maybe it could be. <laughs> well, they put a reporter here to get on to Bernard for that. Came in and checked everybody out and uh, interviewed. Went up to the chemist to say, I believe you've got ivermectin here. She's told, get on her horse and bugger off. You're not mm. welcome. On, on her horse. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, yeah. Get out of here. Wasn't it associated with horses? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, let, let's get back to where we started. This This government is going to come together really soon. Do we think, and there's, you know, Winston has the pressure of that inquiry, and after hearing Judah Klee on our legal hub, I mean, there needs to be an inquiry. Um, do you think Luxon, not so much Seymour, but Luxon, who was, well, Seymour was one of those MPs that wouldn't come to the door of you know, Parliament to meet those people either, for whatever reason, and said some pretty nasty things back then. Do you think they, do you think that, that they can, They'll bow to to what Winston wants to do. There you go. Predictions, please. I think Winston's a canny negotiator. So he is, and he's he's been doing it for a long time. As I've said many times with Marty before on Media Matters, if Luxon has got any sense, he will actually use the strengths and experience that Winston has and his negotiating skills to actually a, a wider purpose. And, you know, let's not write off Seymour. You know, I mean, he's got, um, you know, he's been there for a wee while now. He's also got a very clear head on things such as education. And he, you know, he, if if they're not being belligerent about egos, I think that they could actually have the ability to create a really good, strong coalition. And it was, you know, I just have this feeling they, they, they're all meeting face-to-face. Winston's a face-to-face dude. He's not a don't flick me a text kind of guy. Got the big smile going, Yeah, he's, he, he likes to have a sit down and a, and a good chew fat and, and sort it yeah. out. And I think yeah. the media have literally been grasping at straws and dying of boredom because they wanted this to happen yesterday. And they're just trying to... Um, they're creating stories out of thin air, and it's just not helpful. I mean, let them get. I'd much, ra- I'd much rather they take an extra two or three, three weeks and get this right than rush something through that is just unsatisfactory for anybody. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I actually think they're further along than people might give them credit for, and I think Winston has got a very, very clear vision of the things he wants to achieve. And when you look at his sort of shopping list that he's got. None of it's unsurmountable. There's not anything there that I would have thought would be hardcore. No, Winston, you can't have that because that's too difficult to do. Um, most uh, most of the cool stuff he's got in there is is I think relatively straightforward. So it'll be. Intr- I think the the big sticking point, and I think this is the reason he put it in there, was the he put in there 
the reimbursement or the compensation for those who were vaccine injured and mandated out of their jobs. I think he that's there because he he knows that it's unachievable, but that's actually a negotiating tool that he can drop off right. in order to say, well, okay, I'll let that go as long as you put in the So I don't know how you could let that go, actually. Well, I don't think we've got it. the money because we can't afford it. Well, it's as simple as that. Someone's going to have to pay. Well, it's Pfizer. Maybe they pay with jail time and not money. Pfizer, because the, the, <laughs> all of the exemptions they got from the usual standards of of, um, of pharmaceutical safety um, were, uh, are null and void if there's fraud involved. And I think there's been a reasonable amount of evidence that there's been some pretty shady dealings in terms of the, the trials. And You're trying getting the money out of them, though, Marty. Well, you know, yeah. Yeah, well, they'll all have bottom lines. There, there are things they can let go. Yeah. There are yeah, things well, they've got to, to compromise on, right, try and arrive at a consensus on. What are the really important things, top priority things? They're going to take time to get through all of that. Do you have any thoughts on what you'd do if you were in charge of the country, Pim? Yeah, good, good question. <laughs> if we gave you some dictatorial powers. Benevolent dictator, Pim. Yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, what would I do? I'd revamp the whole education system. Yeah. You would ask what's essential, what's essential here, and get rid of their sexuality education crap. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think that's dead now too? I don't know, because they're pushing us. We had a prime minister who couldn't define a woman, remember? Yeah. Yeah. You're on another planet if you're interested in that issue, so... So, you know, revamp the whole, uh, I'd, I'd look at the, what education system is, what are the core components, you know. I mean, they had a science curriculum, they had no chemistry, no physics, no biology. No science. So what the <laughs> hell was it then? What were they looking at? It was a magic unicorn rainbow syllabus. <laughs> So I would I would look at I would look at education for me and start from there. Okay. What would you do about um, prisons? Because you know there was that policy of of releasing people and not locking up people who were arrested, but at the same time it was revealed that there was no rehabilitation virtually taking place for many people who'd been in jail for a couple of years, no addiction work or. Oh, well, you get, I mean, the outcome is recidivism, eh? Mm. If there's no rehab to go with it, that's what you do. What you, what are you coming out to? You got family support or what? What you got lined up for you? Same old, same old, nothing. So, um, yeah, you can grow gangs that way. I just was saying to Marty, like we 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 covered there was an investigation what about a month ago, eh, Marty, and they were yep. um, prison programs have dropped by I think three quarters in an eight year period, and which even just, as the musters dropped, yeah, even as the musters dropped, it was just appalling. I see. The thing is, is I can't understand why they even just simple things like bring, bringing putting Tikura back into they, we already have Tikura there, you know, and actually having those programs. And working with them to get basic competencies, because I think a good chunk of them go in without uh, any of those level one, level two, level th- level three credits. You know, just getting them 
getting them literate, getting them numerate, giving them the base skills so then when they do come out, they can at least, you know, enter back into the workforce and do those sorts of things because I think a number of them are struggling to do that. So why? Why? Big question. Why? Because governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government Uh. (laughs) and uh, having prisoners that aren't rehabilitated, uh, in fact, are worse at the end of it fits that bill. Uh, and and school at- is just not engaging these kids anymore. It just isn't. I mean, I know that even with my kids, and as I say, as I as I do this because it's all school holidays, I've had a massive sleep. I've got six of them here at the moment, stinky big teenage boys. <laughs> but trying to get some of them to school, and I'm like, well, why didn't you go to school? You know, yeah. the yeah. other day, and they're like, oh no, nah, it stink. Forty percent. No, it is regularly. You know, it's an interesting. Well, well, I'm not sure you call it a phenomenon. A phenomenal phenomenon. But the the presence of LSMs in my in schools now. Of what? In other words, schools can't not do the core business. The, the principalship, the leadership is lacking. So in comes a government sponsored. Oh, sorry, not sponsored because the people still have to pay for the LSM limited statutory manager. Right. They're all over the place. Mm. And one of the reasons is principals aren't being trained properly. In the fundamentals of the job, you know, your job is to get every student across the line, every or not half half of them. And how do you get your teachers to do the job? I've just come with performance appraisal. I go through the classrooms. You know, mm. I do the old-fashioned way. And I write it up. I critique. And unless you've got well-performing and you've got standards, you must have standards. And teachers work together as a team. They encourage one another. Have a look at the planning. How do we do assessment? What's the data look like? There's the It's the fundamentals we've got to get right. Literacy, numeracy, as important as ever, maybe more so. They're looking at financial literacy now. Is that what it is? Or is it maths? Yeah, because those decile one schools are... Uh, getting about 3% of the students to pass uh, that basic reading, writing, and mathematics test after after 10 years in the system. 3%? Uh, that, that's that's I didn't the figure that. I saw for decile one. Yeah. Well, they're not doing, they should be sacked. They're not doing the job. Mm. So you're getting paid by those people's coming into your gate. They're putting money in your pocket. Yeah. So deliver I don't know if you guys caught that that very interesting comment John Banks made when he was interviewed by Cam Slater on on his show The Crunch. He said, "If you go to a uh, high school in Whangarei and say what percentage of your Māori and Pacific Island children uh, students will will achieve school certificate this year will pass it, they'll say about forty five percent. If you had have gone to my charter school and asked the principal what percentage of your Māori and Pacific Island students." will achieve school C, he would have said 96%, and next year I want it to be 100%. Brikey. Yeah. And I quite believe that. And I think we've lost our outrage at uh, at that poor performance. I, I don't think we're – and that's, you know, we were talking about our outrage at seeing Chloe Swarbrick's outrage at something that's happening in the Middle East, and it's like, well, there's, there's plenty to be outraged about here. You know, read the paper and have... If you cared, Marty, if you actually cared. 
it all bites us in the end. Okay, we've come up almost an hour, so I think we're pretty well at the end of time. The end of time, as we know it. Um, <laughs> anyone have any last um, things they want to say before we wind up our political panel chat for this Friday morning? Man, I'd, I'd just like to say thanks for coming on, Pim. I've been uh, hoping to uh, to uh, inveigle you into uh, into this a little bit and and get some different perspectives. And and it's certainly been interesting to hear hear those. And I, I hope we can do it again. Yeah, pleasure meeting you guys and and, and hearing our views and getting them out there. I had a meeting by here, by the way. I got a whole lot of parties together. It was an interesting experience. Just trying to get a coalition of some sort set up, but it didn't work. But I had a good go at it, and I enjoyed the experience. Thanks for the for thanks for the you know, you know the, uh, sharing a bit of a bit of time together, Paul. No, it was great to have sure. you, Pam. It was good to have you back on the program. And Marie, any any final words, Marie? Marie, you got those six big teenagers you got to deal with right now. <laughs> Oh, I just, you know, it is about, I think we need to take things back to basics. It's like what you were saying earlier in the chat, Pim. We've got to look at the rudimentary things that we know work. And sometimes in order to move forward and get progress, we need to actually, you know, remember our history, remember where we come from, remember what worked. And just because something seemed, you know, worked 50, 60, 70 years ago doesn't mean it's not relevant today. And education is a really classic example of that. There's been too much experimentation. I think we do need to go back to some of those basics. And Luxon has indicated that. I'd really love to see him follow through on it. So yeah, let's watch the space. Eh? It'll be intriguing. Right. That's our political panel for this Friday morning. I want to thank Pam Bird beaming in from Murapara. Yeah. That, that, that super high speed link that we've got. <laughs> between here and Murapara. I want to thank Marty Gibson. Thank you, Marty. Good to see you again. And Marie Busky. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Have a great week. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.